Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. This podcast episode contains references to suicide, violence and sexual violence against children. Listener discretion is advised. It's late in the morning on Thursday the 21st of October 1897 and Coolgardie, like the rest of Western Australia, is celebrating the 7th anniversary of Proclamation Day, that is, when the colony achieved self-government. Coolgardie, as Europeans know it, didn't even exist in 1890. It wasn't until 1892 that gold was discovered here. Since then, the place has boomed, becoming the third biggest town in Western Australia. Some 25,000 people live in Coolgardie and in the surrounding settlements. The wealth from the gold rush has seen its dusty streets lined with buildings, some even made of brick and iron and standing two storeys high. There are hotels and breweries, banks and stock exchanges, grocers, tailors and mining supply stores, newspaper and telegraph offices. Today though, most of these businesses are closed for the Proclamation Day public holiday and the streets are packed with thousands of people who've turned out to show their colonial pride. The weather's perfect, clear and warm and celebrations get underway around 11.30 with a march by members of various United Friendly Societies. A nine-man band playing lively music precedes members of the Free Gardeners Society in their bright regalia and towing a trolley decorated with flowers and topped with a miniature Noah's Ark. More societies follow. The Australian Natives, the Rechabites and Druids, Manchester Unity and the Independent Order of Oddfellows. Last but not least come 40 members of the Typographical Society, these typos giving a lusty cheer as they pass the offices of a major employer, the Coolgardie Minor newspaper. Procession over, everyone heads to the Recreation Reserve for the day's real excitement, a gala sports afternoon. 
The big draw cards, as ever, are the bicycle races, featuring stars of the sport that's become a craze all over the gold fields, as it has all over Australia. One of the main events is the two-mile handicap, and six champions line up for the final heat. Then they're off. Heads down, legs pumping, wheels humming, whizzing around the track as the crowd roars for their favourites. For most of the race, the leader of the pack is George Blunderfield, a 26-year-old champion from up in Kalgoorlie. But on the last lap, George falters badly, and a rider named James Bigwood surges past him, followed by two other cyclists who've also put on late bursts of speed. This isn't a good result for the Kalgoorlie man who's lately become accustomed to winning such races. But George hasn't just missed out on the £20 first prize. He's also the subject of a complaint. Other riders tell the stewards he was riding erratically, trying to interfere with them. In short, a bad sport. This ought to be a minor matter. Protests of this nature happen all the time. But while the stewards consider this charge, George Blunderfield makes matters far worse for himself by unleashing a tirade of obscene insults at the race officials. If only he'd held his tongue. That's because the stewards actually dismiss the foul riding complaint. But for his foul language, for his insolence and the abuse he's heaped upon them, they suspend George Blunderfield for three months from participating in any further racing events in the colony of Western Australia. In the scheme of things, it's a trivial offence that'll warrant just a couple of sentences in the extensive racing coverage found in tomorrow's Coolgardie Minor. But this contretemps won't end there. What stewards, cyclists, the race crowd and the man from the Coolgardie Minor don't realise is they haven't just glimpsed an angry outburst made by a gentleman losing his cool. What they've seen is the first crack in the mask worn by a monster in the making. Between now and the first weeks of the new century, the goldfields and the rest of the colony will recoil in horror as he reveals more and more of his true murderous self. And almost exactly 20 years from today, under a new identity and in a new far-off part of the country, George Blunderfield is going to commit crimes that appall all of Australia. I'm Michael Adams and this is part one of the three-part Forgotten Australia episode, The Nature of the Scorpion. The second and third instalments will be available here soon, but as a Forgotten Australia supporter, you can hear the whole story right now. As a supporter, you'll not just get early access to episodes, you can also get exclusive original episodes and the full audiobook of Australia's Sweetheart. You'll also get galleries of photos, articles and artwork from newspapers and magazines published at the time of these events. And as an extra thank you, supporters get a shout out right here in the show. So if you've become a supporter recently, listen out for your name at the end of this instalment. To become a supporter, go to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com forward slash Forgotten Australia, and there's also a link in your show notes. Around the time George Blunderfield was becoming infamous in Western Australia, an animal fable was gaining currency on the other side of the world in Tsarist Russia. You've probably heard it. A frog and a scorpion find themselves side by side on the bank of a stream. The arachnid can't swim, so he asks if he can ride across on the amphibian's back. The frog says, hell no, if I do that, you'll sting me. The scorpion replies, well, if I did that, we'd both die. Seeing the logic in this answer, the good-natured frog agrees. Halfway across the water, the scorpion brings down the stinger and injects its venom. Dying and sinking, the frog asks the murderer, still on its back, why? The scorpion replies, it's in my nature. 
This fable could have been written about George Blunderfield. He couldn't resist his true nature. For two decades, first in Western Australia and then in Victoria, this scorpion would hurt and kill people who, like the frog, only had his best interests at heart. And in committing his escalating atrocities with little thought for consequences, George repeatedly ensured his own increasingly severe punishments. But he was like a scorpion in another way too. Scorpions regularly shed their skins in one piece, leaving behind their ghostly exoskeletons, though they themselves remain unchanged. George Blunderfield did the same thing, assuming numerous guises. Yet, whatever name he went under, he couldn't help but be his true monstrous self. Family records at Ancestry.com.au show that George Farrow Blunderfield was born in July 1871 in Suffolk, England. His parents, Benjamin and Mary, already had a daughter, Henrietta, and a son, Frank, and after George in England, they'd go on to have four more surviving children. They were Jesse, Alice, Beatrice and Stephen. In early 1880, Benjamin, who worked as a farmer, filed for bankruptcy. The Blunderfields needed a fresh start, so he went to South Africa with his wife and children joining him in 1882. Soon after arriving, George would say, he contracted a serious case of enteric fever, that is, typhoid. He survived, and in 1885, the family moved again, this time to Adelaide. The next year, Benjamin and Mary had another daughter, naming her Adelaide after their new home, but this little girl soon died. Their last surviving child, son Charles, came along in 1888. It was a big family, and we'll be hearing not just about George, but also about his brothers Frank, Stephen and Charles, and his sisters Henrietta and Jesse, because their stories intersect with his. At first their father Benjamin worked as an Adelaide milkman, but he'd soon settle into the career that he'd follow for the next 20 years, and that was as the fellow who put up the real estate for sale and to let signs all over the city. Son George grew to stand 5 foot 8 and weigh 180 pounds. He was dark-haired, had a lean, handsome face with high cheekbones and really striking blue eyes. George was athletic, though a heavy smoker, and he spoke with an English accent that had a slight nasal twang. George would later give his occupation as a train engine driver, so it's possible he worked around South Australia on the railways in his youth. In his later account, George went to the Western Australian goldfields in 1894. For reasons that will become clear later, this claim needs to be scrutinised. On the 6th of November 1894, a passenger named Blunderfield, no initial, arrived at Albany in Western Australia on a steamer from Adelaide. Whether this was George or where he went isn't known. But on the 18th of January 1896, two Blunderfields, again their initials not listed, got off a steamer in Albany, again from Adelaide. A week later, in the Kalgoorlie Minor newspaper, we find an F. Blunderfield and an A. Blunderfield as having contributed to a fund for a woman rendered homeless by a fire. The F. would have been Frank, the A. was most likely Sister Alice. But it's also possible George was in Kalgoorlie at this time. We know he was definitely there by April 1896, for he was able to take note of a mining lease that was unworked and soon after make a claim for it in court. Over the next six months, George applied for numerous forfeited mining leases, applied for a few of his own, and acted as an agent for other miners making applications. Frank got a job at the Golden Ridge Mine, 12 miles east of town. 
While his brother worked with his hands as a gold miner, George was soon making money with his legs in the region's other boom business, bicycles. In visiting the Western Australian goldfields in the 1890s, we usually imagine dusty outposts where men got around on foot or on horses or camels. What's less recalled is that one of the main modes of transport was the bicycle. On the 20th of August 1895, the Coolgardie miner wrote, quote, The bicycle is one of the most important factors in the development of the goldfields. Two-wheelers had first gained popularity in Australia in the 1870s. These penny farthings, so named because of the relative sizes of their huge front and tiny rear wheels, were high off the ground and inherently dangerous. But by the mid-1880s, there was the safety bicycle, which was far lower to the ground with wheels of equal and modest size. It's the basic bike design we know today. Cycling historian Jim Fitzpatrick tells us that 200,000 such bikes were imported into Australia in the 1890s. And the most concentrated bicycle ownership on the continent? The Western Australian goldfields. There are a lot of reasons for this. In terms of getting around, the harsh climate made long journeys on foot pretty difficult. Unlike the cities, there weren't trains, omnibuses or trams between the smaller towns. Horses and camels needed water and food and to be corralled and cared for. Bikes didn't require much more than pedal power and a bit of maintenance. In terms of communication, telephones were still a few years off on the goldfields and telegraph coverage had its limitations. In the time it took you to get to a telegraph office, pay for a message to be tapped out and then received at an office in a town miles away and then delivered to a recipient who had to be found, well, it might be cheaper and faster to simply hop on your bike, cover the distance yourself, find the fellow and chat face to face. Or you could pay someone to ride on your behalf and return with a reply. Chaps who could ride far and fast were called special cyclists. They made their money conveying messages, delivering letters and packages, and speeding news of gold discoveries so that submission of new claims might be expedited. George Blunderfield was a powerful rider and he worked as a special cyclist. He also got into the business of buying, selling and fixing bikes. There was a lot of money to be made in this because imported bicycles didn't come cheap. They cost around £25, which was then what a man might make working as a labourer for two months. In addition to being a special cyclist, there was another way to recoup the cost of your bike and maybe even turn a profit. This was to be a racer. Across Australia from 1878, bicycle clubs had sprung up in colonial capitals and across regional towns. Races were first held for trophies, but they soon included substantial cash prizes. By November 1896, George Blunderfield was making his name as a top competitor. In December that year, he came second in two races at Bardock, winning a trophy worth £2 for the two-mile event and a £1 cash prize for the mile-and-a-half fixture. On Boxing Day 1896 at Kanauna, George came within a whisker of winning the two-mile race but still walked away with £5.05 five shillings for coming second. George's rising star was reported in the detailed coverage that these events received in the local papers. And these articles also mentioned any mishaps or accidents, noting, for instance, that he'd had to retire in the Kanauna five-mile event around halfway because of a problem with his bike. While George Blunderfield would, in a few years, be known all over Australia, the first of his name to make big into colonial news was his older brother Frank. Two days after that Kanauna race, Monday the 28th of December 1896, 
George, Frank and another mate were on foot, taking what they thought was a short track between Kalgoorlie and Golden Ridge Mine. Yet they were on the wrong road. By dusk, Frank was too tired to go on. George and his mate kept walking and they reached Golden Ridge in the morning. There, they rode out on bikes in search of Frank, but they didn't find any trace of him. With no water and no food, and with daily temperatures rising into the 30s, the lost man wouldn't last long. On the Wednesday, a search party was mounted, and they had no luck either. Thursday yielded the same dismal result. Then, remarkably, early the next morning, New Year's Day, 1897, a mounted police constable and an Aboriginal tracker found Frank Blunderfield alive, if exhausted, starving and dehydrated. By March 1897, George was winning bike races as the scratch man who started without a handicap. At Broad Arrow, at the St. Patrick's Day Sports Gala, he took out first in the two and five mile races and pocketed a tidy £17 prize money. The local newspaper, the Broad Arrow Standard, said he, quote, seemed to have it all his own way in whatever race he contested. George Blunderfield was a fine young colonial gentleman, popular, hardworking and truly a sportsman. He was a credit to Kalgoorlie, especially when riding against races from rival Coolgardie. George also gave back to the sport and to the town, as one of the recently founded Coolgardie Bicycle Club's two honorary secretaries. In the autumn of 1897, he was a leading force behind getting a new racing track built at the Recreation Reserve. The velodrome, complete with a grandstand for the ladies, was to be opened on the Queen's birthday holiday in May. All events that day were to be conducted under the rules of the West Australian League of Wheelmen, which was the governing body for the sport in the colony. Most of the Queen's birthday races were serious, though a few, like the fancy dress event, were light-hearted. But keeping riders safe was a priority, so punters had to keep their pets at home. As the newspaper ads warned, quote, dogs will be shot. The day was a splendid success, and no carbines had to be used on canines. George competed in the one-mile race, came first and won a gold medal, while £93 in cash prizes were distributed to other cyclists. Just a month later, George and his co-secretary organised an even bigger racing carnival for Queen Victoria's Diamond Jubilee. Bicycle events that day offered £205 in prize money and some 5,000 people came from all over the goldfields, which was more than double the number of people who lived in Kalgoorlie itself. In September 1897, George competed in Coolgardie on Anniversary Day, which celebrated the discovery of gold five years earlier. The half-mile handicap ended with a chap named Bennett crossing the line first. To signal this, the steward fired his gun, just as George, who was in second place, fell with another rider crashing into him. The timing of this, the shot and the fall, led spectators to briefly worry that the official had accidentally put a bullet in his pistol and shot beloved George Blunderfield. In the years to come, people might have wished that had been the case, that he'd been put down then and there like an intruding dog. But that same month, September 1897, George was regarded as an angel of mercy rather than feared as an angel of death. When a miner named Wilson lay dying in Kalgoorlie Hospital, he cried out that he wanted to see his brothers who were working at Barara some 20 miles east. George was at the Grand Hotel when he heard this. So he raced on his bike to Barara and gave the machine to the brothers so they could use it to speed to the deathbed and see off their sibling. 
A correspondent for the Kalgoorlie Western Argus wrote, quote, I consider it my duty to bestow a high tribute of praise upon Mr George Blunderfield. The writer said that George's actions showed that, quote, old-time loyalty between mates on goldfields is still extant. He also said that it, quote, proved how invaluable is the service of the bike in localities which have not yet been favoured with telegraphic communication. There was mateship on the goldfields, but rivalry too, particularly between Kalgoorlie and Coolgardie. Of course, this was keenly felt in bicycle races. In September 1897, which was a pretty busy month, a young Coolgardie champion named Frederick Stelwag issued a challenge. He'd back himself to the tune of £40 to beat any Kalgoorlie riders over one, two and three mile races to be held on the same day. George Blunderfield accepted the challenge for the shorter courses. Another Kalgoorlie clubman would take on Mr Stelwag over the three miles. Best of three would decide which town's riders reigned supreme. By this time, George had entered into communications with the West Australian League of Wheelmen to have the Kalgoorlie Club officially affiliated. But hearing of the upcoming Kalgoorlie Coolgardie Challenge, the League ruled it couldn't go ahead because it was operating as a private for-profit syndicate. The Kalgoorlie Minor newspaper was outraged, saying this was, quote, bunkum. Then, on the 21st of October, 1897, at the Proclamation Day races in Coolgardie, George Blunderfield went on that foul-mouthed tirade against stewards. They banned him from riding anywhere in the colony for the next three months, and they looked to the league in Perth to confirm this disqualification. George thumbed his nose at the stewards. He wasn't going to let them stop him riding in Kalgoorlie and for Kalgoorlie against Coolgardie and Coolgardie's Mr Stelwag. On Saturday, the 23rd, a huge crowd gathered at the Kalgoorlie bike track to watch the showdown. George Blunderfield trounced Frederick Stelwag in both the one and two mile races. The third event wasn't even held because Kalgoorlie was triumphant 2-0. George won the 40 pounds and so much more. The Kalgoorlie miner on the 25th of October described the scene, quote, Blunderfield's mastery of the visitor was hailed with delight and he was carried shoulder-high into the dressing room where Stelwag lay apparently exhausted. The conquering hero, George Blunderfield, continued to ignore the ban and the Kalgoorlie club had his back. But matters threatened to come to a head when he rode in events on the 10th of November. Under the league's edicts, everyone who raced against George now risked disqualification. Matters became more complicated when he came second in one of the races and claimed the prize money. Given he shouldn't have been competing, this cash rightly belonged to the man who came third. The league wrote to the Kalgoorlie club demanding an explanation. George wrote back to slam the Coolgardie stewards and to air his general grievances against the West Australian League of Wheelmen. George's lengthy letters, read aloud at a league meeting, included several, quote, bombastic and insulting remarks. As 1898 began, George continued to train, race and carry out Kalgoorlie club duties. But in mid-January in Perth, the infuriated league doubled down by banning him from Western Australian cycling for the term of his natural life. It also advised its brother leagues in other colonies that George Blunderfield was, quote, a person ineligible for election to any cycling club or body. The West Australian Sunday Times newspaper agreed that this obnoxious rider of the goldfields had gotten what he deserved. But the Kalgoorlie club wasn't cowed. 
they'd reappoint him honorary secretary, and he remained active in training, steering a quad bike used for pacing on the track. In April 1898, George and his three fellow riders crashed this quad bike, and he suffered the worst of the injuries with badly cut knees. But he wasn't out of action, and the next month he organised the Monster Cycling Carnival at the Recreation Reserve for that year's Queen's Birthday. George's younger brother Stephen, newly arrived in Kalgoorlie, here competed in his first races. And the kid did alright, placing second and third in events, winning prizes valued at around £1. The Kalgoorlie club clearly still had George's back. In August 1898, they petitioned the West Australian League of Wheelmen to overturn his lifetime ban, writing, quote, We consider the penalty Mr Blunderfield has already suffered sufficient for the alleged offence, and we further consider that the interest of the league would be considerably strengthened on the goldfields if the ban were removed, as Mr Blunderfield is universally known to be a gentleman of irreproachable character. Over in Perth, the league met and they'd had enough. Without discussing the matter, they unanimously voted to allow George back into their good graces. But it wasn't in his nature to take this vindication gracefully. In early 1899, the Kalgoorlie Club had planned a challenge match with a visiting cyclist, but the league then slapped a ban on this man for his supposed previous infractions. The Kalgoorlie Club let him ride anyway, and the league was outraged. George Blunderfield now took on a leading role in saying to hell with the league. Goldfield cyclists should secede and form their own governing body. In a public meeting, he said the league's treatment of the club, i.e. him, had been, quote, absolutely rotten. The league suspended the Kalgoorlie Club for six months. They didn't care, and George helped them set up the new Goldfields League. Through the autumn and winter of 1899, George continued racing, but he wasn't on a winning streak. Then, in September, his real losing streak began, and it had last the rest of his life. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. On the 24th of September, 1899, Kalgoorlie was rocked by news that spread via word of mouth and that it'd be in the newspapers the next morning. George Blunderfield, the upstanding citizen and cycling hero, along with his younger brother Stephen, were behind bars in the town's lockup, arrested for being in possession of a stolen bicycle worth £20. The police alleged it had been pinched from a man in Coolgardie on Friday night. The bike was found during a search of George's camp on the Sunday. He denied the accusation. When he appeared in Kalgoorlie Police Court on Monday, George said he'd bought the bike on Friday from a man named Mr Rowley. His brother Stephen denied having anything to do with anything. The judge remanded the brothers to appear in court but released them on £10 bail. When the case was heard five days later, the charge against Stephen Blunderfield was dropped, but George was still in hot water. 
The Kulgali man swore that the bike produced in evidence was his, though the handlebars had been changed out. In his defence, George said he'd been buying and selling bikes for three years without any problem and he'd never bought a machine that appeared to have been tampered with. He produced a receipt for the bike from a Mr Rowley and produced a man in court who claimed to have witnessed the exchange with George paying £10 cash for the bike. George said he had been in Kulgadi on the Friday but had returned to Kalgoorlie on the train around 8pm. So why hadn't George produced this receipt when the police had come to question him? He said it was because he wasn't sure which bike they were talking about and besides, he wasn't going to entrust such a valuable piece of exculpatory evidence to police because if they lost it, he'd be done for. Despite George Blunderfield's credible story and his fine reputation, there were whispers on the goldfields that he was deeply involved with an epidemic of bicycle theft. Thieves the rumour went, would ride the bikes directly into George's workshop. He'd quickly break them down, file off any serial numbers, repaint the frames, and combine this and that component with other stolen parts to make a brand new bike he could sell for 15, 20, or even 25 pounds. Indeed, during the search of his camp, police had found another bike frame and parts they'd now identified as stolen. So, though the magistrate dismissed George over the Coolgardie theft, this new charge against him was going to be heard in a week. When it came to court on the 7th of October, a man named John Ibista said his bike had been stolen from his camp on the night of the 23rd of September. Next time he'd seen his bike, it was in the possession of the police. The machine was in pieces and the frame had been repainted, but Mr Ibista identified the various parts as being his. The police said they'd found the bike frame, its new paint still wet, in George's workshop. A paintbrush with his initials had been right there. Police also produced a witness who said he'd seen the accused riding near Mr Abista's camp on the night of the theft. George told the court he'd never seen the bike parts before and he produced a witness saying he'd been in Kanauna that night and so nowhere near the scene of the crime. Further, George denied using the workshop for months part of which was now being used as accommodation by a friend of his, John Campbell, a man he'd known since he came to Kalgoorlie five years earlier. The police asked for a continuance because they had to talk to more witnesses. When court resumed on the 11th of October, George's lawyer got an adjournment. The case would now continue on the 18th of October. If convicted, George would likely get off with a fine, but a verdict against him, that would damage his reputation. In the days leading up to the 18th of October, George learned that this friend of his, John Campbell, was going to testify for the prosecution. On the night of Sunday the 15th, George went to see this friend. He said he was going to meet two men out on the road to Kanauna. George said he was going to subpoena these blokes because they could prove he was innocent of the theft of Mr. Abista's bike. George asked John to come with him and hear the truth for himself. As they'd been friends for years, John agreed, and the two men walked out into the darkness. They waited by some dumps. George asked his mate to climb up and drop stones to test the depth of a shaft. John Campbell thought this was a strange request and said he'd rather not do that. The Kanauna witnesses didn't show, and George and John went back to the camp. Early on Monday afternoon, John was about to go underground at his mining job when Stephen Blunderfield turned up and said George needed to see him. John said he had to work. Stephen said, no problem, 
he'd do his shift for him. So John went to see George, and that early evening, they headed out again to see those men from Kanauna. Two or three miles down the road, they waited at another lonely spot. When it got cold, they agreed to make a fire. As John bent down to gather some brush, George bashed him over the back of the head with an iron bar. John fell to the ground. As he tried to get up, George swung again, but this blow missed John's head and hit him in the back. He managed to stagger up and grab a piece of wood. George Blunderfield ran and John tried to give chase, but he was woozy from a two-inch cut in the back of his head, the blow having split his scalp down to the skull. Now, George started to throw rocks at him. John screamed out, Murder! This made George panic. He called out that he hadn't meant any harm and that he was sorry for what he'd done. John cried out, Murder! one more time, and this made George run off into the darkness. The wounded man made it to a camp and raised the alarm. The next morning, George was charged with inflicting grievous bodily harm. Even so, he was allowed out on bail. This story, dubbed a great sensation of the goldfields, was news all over the colonies. Though John Campbell recovered, at the preliminary hearing, the charge against George Blunderfield was upgraded to attempted murder. Now the court heard what John had to say about George and those bicycle thefts. His evidence actually related to the first charge, which had already been dismissed. John said that he'd seen George ride into Kalgoorlie on the night of the 21st of September on what was apparently the bike he'd stolen from Coolgardie. George hadn't, as he'd claimed previously, taken the train that night. John Campbell said that he and George had been friends for five years and there had been no ill feeling between them. George had just suddenly attacked him that night. George's lawyer reserved his defence for the trial. Until then, though, his client would be behind bars. While George awaited trial, the second bicycle charge was proceeded with in court. After evidence was heard, the magistrate found him guilty and ordered him to pay a £5 fine, in default of which he'd do three months in jail. This, though, was the least of George's worries. Western Australia was the only colony in the British Empire where attempted murder was still a capital crime. Though it was highly unlikely he'd be hanged, George might serve a lengthy prison sentence with hard labour. On the 15th of November 1899, at the Perth Criminal Sessions, George pleaded not guilty to attempted murder. John Campbell's evidence remained the same. Now, George told his side of the story. He maintained he'd bought the bike on the 22nd, had been arrested two days later, and had already answered this charge in court and it had been dismissed. George claimed that John Campbell had come to him about the second charge. His friend had said he knew two men who could corroborate George's defence. It had been John's idea to go out and meet these men. Their Sunday night trek had been a bust. John saying the men must have been mixed up about when they were supposed to meet. So they'd gone out again on the Monday night. When the Kanauna men didn't show again, George and John had had an argument. George told the court that he'd accused John of being a liar who was working for the police. John had then lost his temper, sworn at George, and hit him on the leg with a lump of quartz. George had picked up a mining baton. John had grabbed another stone. They'd fought and George had hit John on the back of the head. But it had been George who feared for his life because he was in danger of falling down a shaft if John had managed to hit him again. 
Fortunately, though, John had run away. The next morning, it had been George who'd been arrested, even though this had been a fair and square fight over a relatively trivial matter. Summing up, the judge said that both witnesses were credible and straightforward. The jury retired, deliberated for an hour, and found George Blunderfield not guilty. George Blunderfield returned to Kalgoorlie a free man, and it didn't seem he suffered too much as a result of the troubles of the past few months. George was charming and popular, and he'd been acquitted of the serious charge. Despite the rumours, many of his supporters surely believed him when he claimed he was innocent of the bike theft. New Year's Eve 1899 fell on a Sunday. Thus, in terms of drinking and carousing, it was a sober and restrained evening. It had been a very hot day on the goldfields, and Kalgoorlie people did come out from under their tents and tin-roofed houses to take the cool air on the streets and exchange best wishes under the starry skies. At midnight, mine whistles were sounded and dynamite cartridges detonated while youngsters banged tins and blew trumpets. An hour later, most everyone in Kalgoorlie was asleep. But as 1900 began, the monster was stirring, with George Blunderfield just weeks from committing the first in a series of outrages that would make him one of the most notorious figures of early 20th century Australia. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to part one of the three-part Forgotten Australia episode, The Nature of the Scorpion. Parts two and three will be released here soon, but as a show supporter, you can hear the whole story right now. For more information, go to patreon.com forward slash Forgotten Australia, and this link's also in your show notes. A big, big thank you to these champions for becoming supporters in the past few weeks. Colleen Rowley, Marianne Goldstraw, Felix Noonan, James Hodson, Jeff Jay, Mikey Labrieri, Mary Davis, Sally Carmody, Max Cutter, Glenda Bishop, Phil Boy, Kimmy Mass, Rachel Schwer Hocking, Caroline Foley, James Cole, Sherry Somerville, Carl Van Zwoy, Lara Kane Gray, and Carol Schreiber. Guys, I really appreciate your support. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land that's traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, Thanks for listening. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.